1: And you're about to listen to part two of my interview with Andy Crouch. If you haven't listened to part one already, you probably want to stop, go back, and check that out. Because we're going to kind of pick things up right where we left off. This is our last episode of Cultivated Season 1. And I wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who's listened, who shared it online, and helped us spread the word. And though we're going away for a bit, please take time to listen to our archives if you haven't already. Listen to some of the names you don't know. They told great stories, and each of them has something worthwhile to say about faith and work or faith and culture. In the meantime, we're working on new episodes, and we're raising some money, and we're working on The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, another show from Harbor Media. That show actually had its pilot episode released last fall. If you haven't heard it already, you can go check it out. We'll put the link in our show notes. And people have asked, when is more of that show coming? And the answer is, as soon as we're done working on those episodes. We have a small team, and we're trying to sort of build things out step by step. We have lots of ideas, though, and lots of things coming soon, so it won't be long till we're back. We're already scheduling more interviews for Cultivated, and we hope to have a whole season ready for you before too long. If you want to help us move things along, you can do that in two ways. First, you can rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really does help us a lot, and it helps new people find the show. Every little share helps, whether it's online, on Facebook, on social media, or whatever the case might be. Or two, you can go to harbormedia.com slash donate and chip in a few bucks. And again, every little bit helps. Okay, back to Andy Crouch. Uh, when I interviewed Andy, we were actually at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, which Andy described like this.
0: I think this hotel was des- designed by a demented architect with an unlimited budget and a fascination with tropical plants. <laughs>
1: That's, That's my not, theory. That, that seems accurate.
2: There's a pine wall on a hollow limb he seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on. It seems to hustle leaves and the colours all around. Now, first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know.
1: Looking at your bio, I saw I wrote down a few notes. Campus minister at Harvard, musician and worship leader, editor. Regeneration quarterly, which was a great oh. magazine. I, oh, I miss our, it.
0: You and our seven other readers. Uh, <laughs> I'm very grateful.
1: Um, writer, speaker, fellow at various institutions.
0: <laughs> what you can see is it. It makes absolutely no sense. Is <laughs> what you're getting at,
1: right? There's I'm, no coherence so, to this story. Well, oh, and you you uh, you had a shout out on a LaCrae record as well. <laughs> Culture making, you talk about how there's these four gestures that are different ways of of engaging or cooperating or participating in culture. And one of them is copying. And the Christian subculture is very guilty of overindulging in copying. And copying, I mean, it's the nature of like even photocopying. You know, the copy is a degradation of the original. Yes. And that happens, that yes. happens in the arts. And so when you talk about excellence like that, the first name that pops to my mind is Scott Derrickson. Oh, yeah. You know, who's this brilliant filmmaker. Right. Doing dark, weird, mm-hmm. different kind of stuff. And he's a person of faith and, yep. you know, seems to have no problem. I mean, he's making the Doctor Strange film. And right. That's a big film right at the heart, right at the center of what, what's driving Hollywood these days.
0: Because he's actually doing something distinctive and excellent. And it's always going to be rarer. It's never easy, and not all of us can do it. And this is why I think you can't seek power per se, <laughs> because unless you're excellent, the path to power is compromise. This is a kind of a crass way of putting it, but you know, one question is, can you make it on Broadway without sleeping with a producer? And the answer is, yes, you can if you are the best. But if you are one of 100 equally qualified but not exceptional Artists or actors, the way to get to that spot is to sleep with the producer. You know, Julia Roberts, in terms of career earnings, is the most compensated woman actor in Hollywood. She has never done a nude scene Mm. because she's the best. She doesn't have to do it. Mm. And so the problem is if you're aiming at access, unless you are the best, you will compromise some very profound things to get it. But if you are truly excellent, you will not have to do that. But the problem is not all of us are that. Not all of us are Julie Roberts. (laughs) (laughs) And so there has to be this kind of humble realization. I'm not going to be able to do that. And therefore, for me to try to get that kind of cultural power would actually require a a sacrifice that I ought not make.
1: So then what's the path for the person that recognizes... I can't do it without compromise. Where do you aim then? Yeah. Where do you hope to find yourself?
0: Is it Martin Luther King who said, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. So if your path is not to be the best in a highly elite demanding field, but to be the best at serving, that's not a zero-sum game in the way that the pinnacle of elite power is in any given field. So for example, in medicine, if you want to research, get an MD, PhD, you know, land a job at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, get $10 million in grants a year, Well, there's two ways. One is to work your tail off and probably sacrifice your marriage and probably run over a lot of people on the way. And the other is to be so good that you just, by grace, end up in that place. That's a very narrow little slippery pole. But if you want to use medicine, in an excellent way to serve vulnerable populations, whether it's the homeless, whether it's people who can't access medical care any other way, that is wide open and it requires just as much excellence as doing research at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Just a different kind. And everybody can do that. And we need to learn more actually about medicine and poverty and medicine in vulnerable communities. And it's wide open. Everyone else is chasing status. And it would be tremendously cultural influential. So, an example of this is this guy, Paul Farmer. He's made it to the top of the heap in medicine. He teaches at, uh, he has an appointment at Mass General Hospital, teaches at Harvard Medical School. He's devoted his whole life to public health in Haiti. And he has tremendous cultural influence because he he sought a different path. Uh, He has the lead access too, uh, but his passion is how do we, in an excellent way, provide health in one of the most impoverished countries in the world? That's wide open in every field. Serving the vulnerable, is wide open in everything.
1: One of the themes in culture making is a certain kind of suspicion around the idea of changing the world. He cautions Christians who set out to change the world. He writes, the unspoken assumption in nearly every Christian use of that phrase, changing the world, is that our cultural activity will change the world for the better. But why do we assume this? Changing the world sounds grand until you consider how poorly we do at even changing our own little lives. On a daily basis, we break our promises, indulge our addictions, and rehearse old fantasies and grudges that even we know we'd be better off without. We have changed less about ourselves than we would like to admit. Who are we to charge off to change the world? Indeed, I sometimes wonder if breathless rhetoric about changing the world is actually about changing the subject from our own fitfully suppressed awareness we did not ask to be brought into this world, have only vaguely succeeded in figuring it out, and will end our days in radical dependence on something or someone other than ourselves. If our excitement about changing the world leads us into the grand illusion that we stand somehow outside the world, knowing what's best for it, tools and goodwill and gusto at the ready, we have not yet come to terms with the reality that the world has changed us far more than we will ever change it. Beware of world changers. They have not yet learned the true meaning of sin. I asked Danny to unpack that phrase a little bit, why we should be aware of world changers.
0: Well, it comes first from just the kind of ubiquity of the phrase, change the world. I mean, how many universities have that in their mission statement? How many companies say this is what we're trying to do? And as a writer, it's my job to be suspicious of cliches, which are things that are too familiar. Because the truth should always sting, the truth should always surprise, and cliches do neither one. So... I just started thinking, well, what do we really mean when we talk about changing the world? And then you quickly realize, first of all, nobody changes the world, really. The world, like even Coca-Cola, there are places in the world you cannot get a Coca-Cola. And so even Coca-Cola has not changed the world. So it's the wrong frame. Like, it's not what we're meant to do. So you're not going to change the world. So then you start to ask, why do we use that rhetoric? And we use it to amp up our sense of significance. And that's actually, by the way, the core of sin, is an inflated sense of significance and this pursuit of being more than I really am made to be. So the man and the woman in the garden are given stewardship of eventually the whole world for now this garden, and yet they hear this serpent whispering, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like, God. Like, ooh, I think I want that. What do they want? They want this inflated significance to know good and evil, As if anyone could know that, certainly by eating a fruit, probably not going to happen. But they go after that. And that inflation, beyond what I'm actually made to do, is the essence of pride. And that's why I say, beware of world changes. A, they don't know what they're saying, because they're not actually going to do it. And B, they're indulging in an inflated account of what their life means that actually will cause them to misrepresent themselves to use other people because, man, if I've got to change the world, I-, I got a lot to do here and you are at best an instrument in my hands for my world domination that I apparently am called to. So it's a tremendously dangerous uh, piece of familiar rhetoric.
1: Well, and there's a straight line from those ideas to your more recent book, Strong and Weak,
0: hmm.
1: where authority without vulnerability leads to this manipulation, right? Yes. So if the mandate is change the world at all costs, yes, you know, you have to bowl everyone over on the way. Tell me about what brought you to write Strong and Weak. What were you seeing that you felt like this needs to be, you know, this needs to be exposed and Christians Mm. need to be talking about these things?
0: It came out of a bigger book that I wrote first called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. I felt like we needed a lot more conversation about power than we usually have in the church. I think we often try to deny that power exists. <laughs> it's an uncomfortable topic. It's also something people don't believe applies to them. But we don't realize actually all of us have a great deal of power. I mean, if you live in the United States, speak English and, you know, have a blue passport or can get one, you have more power than 8 billion people in the world or whatever. We avoid the subject and I felt like that's dangerous and actually I think there's some beautiful things that we can learn if we will tackle this subject. Specifically with this new book, Strong and Weak, literally what happened is I realized I'd left out the best part of the previous book because <laughs> I hadn't figured it out yet. It's in the previous book in a sort of a beginning way that authority and vulnerability go together, but I really hadn't seen how important that is. Like, it's central. And Playing God comes out, and it's I hope it's been helpful to people, but I was like, oh my gosh, I left out like the, the most helpful insight. And then the book Strong and Weak is also built around this actual picture where we draw a two-by-two two grid on paper and you can see how authority and vulnerability go together in a kind of a two-by-two two business school type two-by-two. Two. And so I was like, well, I guess I have to write another little book because this is too good to leave unsaid. And actually, I think it's going to end up being probably helpful to more people than the big, thick, kind of theoretical book on power.
1: If you want to see the two-by-two grid Andy just mentioned, we'll have it up at harbormedia.com, where we'll also have links to Andy's books. But here's the gist of it. The chart plots the relationship between authority or power with vulnerability. If you have authority without vulnerability, what results is exploitation. If you have vulnerability without authority, what results is suffering. You don't have the resources to push back against the exploiting powers in the world, and you will be the one exploited. But together, power and vulnerability lead to flourishing. In other words, if you have any capacity for power, any authority, and you're not using it to serve others, putting power to use on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable, then you likely aren't contributing to human flourishing. Your impact on the world is going to drain it of its resources and to leave it worse than you found it. Talk to me about vulnerability because that's a hot topic right now. Brene Brown stuff is very popular. I was actually talking to a guy named Chuck DeGroat. And one of the things he said that was really interesting to me is that there's a difference between real vulnerability and openness. Yes. And that there's a kind of pseudo-vulnerability, that's the openness, yes. that we can use to manipulate people.
0: Exactly.
1: And I think that's a key thing because Christian culture has a way of sort of rewarding openness.
0: And and the culture more widely. I mean, like, Lena Dunham would be the like poster girl for this in yeah. her show Girls. Like, just let it all hang out. Very vulnerable. Not necessarily healthy, right? Not necessarily leading to health. Yes.
1: Yeah, unpack that.
0: This is the challenge I have as a writer is that I have to choose my words and I have to kind of commit to a word like vulnerability. But vulnerability comes with all these meanings I may not intend. So I have to decide, do I just use this word anyway or do I pick another word? And honestly, I did partly pick the word vulnerability because it is so popular right now. But I mean by it something a little different. And I think, you know, the way that Chuck DeGroat put it is good. We often use the word vulnerability to refer to a kind of emotional transparency. And I want to use the word vulnerability kind of in a deeper sense to mean exposure to meaningful risk. So to be vulnerable is to have something at stake that I can't totally control that is at risk in whatever I'm experiencing or doing. Now, sometimes emotional openness is a meaningful risk. There are some settings where for me to sort of allow my emotions to be visible or allow my history to be told or any number of things. Or for that matter, I mean, there can be physical vulnerability to be seen in a physically vulnerable condition. That can be a meaningful risk, or it can be a path to power. So for Lana Dunham, who appears physically naked on screen, being naked is not vulnerable. It is vulnerable in a sense, but it's also a path to tremendous cultural power. And so is it a risk? It may be something of a risk. Is it also a path to manipulative capacity, whether it's used that way or not? Yes, it's also that. So there's lots of meaningful risks that don't involve certain kinds of transparency, but you're still really putting something on the line. You know, so being prophetic, that is speaking forth to holders of power the actual consequences and dimensions of their power. That's what prophets do. That doesn't involve emotional openness. You know, well, as the prophet, I'm feeling something. (laughs) That's not the point. The point is, here's your power. Here's how you're using it. Here's the way it's damaging you. Here's what's going to be the end result. Like, that's a huge risk to do that. You can get killed for that, and you may never have shared your deepest feelings. So I want to think about vulnerability as all the ways that we take on— meaningful risk. And for some people in some places, that'll be emotional openness, but not always.
1: One of the things that came to mind as I was reading the book is just this idea of, and I think you even used the phrase, hidden vulnerabilities. For leaders of all kinds, this phrase that's stuck in my mind for years is, we all fear being found out. We Mm -hmm. all kind of secretly wonder, like... Do I belong where I am? Whether we're in ministry or in a leadership position in the marketplace or, you know, are people going to figure out that actually I've been faking this whole thing, <laughs> you know? I think that's a really common thought. And I wonder, is that the kind of thing you're getting at when it comes to hidden vulnerability? And if so, how do you begin to allow yourself to acknowledge that and maybe even expose that in safe spaces without it becoming manipulative, Manipulation. A, a power, a, a tool for power?
0: I think this issue of hidden vulnerability, that is having an awareness of risks that other people don't see and maybe can't see, I think it's the essential experience of leadership. So there are other kinds of even prominent things we can do, public things we can do, where everybody sees the risk you're taking. When you see an athletic competition, the risks are all obvious like you have actual competition so you have your competitors or you have the record you're trying to beat or you have the limits of your own body or whatever and everybody sees it that's what makes it so powerful it's authority and vulnerability together that makes us so compelled by athletic competition the difference with leadership is that leadership involves tons of vulnerability but most of it people never see or imagine Now, I actually would say what you described is very real, that sense of self-doubt, the kind of imposter syndrome that every human being feels when we're put in positions of prominence. And that's one dimension, but it's part of a larger suite of vulnerabilities that the leader has to bear because what it is to be a leader is you're aware of risks present in the system you're leading that the people you're leading are not. So, I mean, it's everything from I see a degree of financial statements that, aren't accessible to the whole company, or I see trends coming before others do if I'm in certain positions. I know the conflict between these two people that's been sort of kept under wraps, but I mean, the leader finds out about it. (laughs) And you can't disclose most of that because sometimes to do so would violate confidence. Often to do so would undermine morale and you would be loading onto other people things they actually have no authority to change. So this is the drama of leadership. And there's a lot of stuff you bear that isn't related to your own internal stuff. It's just like this system that I'm responsible for is kind of messy. (laughs) And that's always true. Well, that's
1: true in relationships too. Oh, totally. Like in a marriage. You know?
0: So, and then I have this layer of self- just this constant narrative going on in my head that's critiquing and challenging and undermining. You know? It's like, oh, you're a, what an idiot you are. And I am an idiot, <laughs> right? It's not false uh, the humility, right? So the drama of leadership is how do you bear this in a healthy way? And I think you mentioned some really important dimensions to that, which is you have to be able to share it I think that's part of the importance of the life of prayer. I mean, prayer is not just therapy for the leader. It's access to the God who made the world. But part of the purpose of prayer is to bring all that I am, including all the risks I'm aware of, into the hands of the one who can hold it and who has held it and does hold it. And then friendship. Leaders have to have friends. And you have to have friends who can identify with the risks as you experience them which means leaders to some extent need lead friends who are peers, who are in similar positions, because it's very hard to imagine. We look up the chain of power And we just so readily imagine how much authority people have. Like today, I spoke and then I was followed by, it doesn't really matter who it is, but a very, very famous, prominent, popular speaker. And I look at him and all I can really imagine of him is like how much power he has and how popular he is and how good looking he is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine being him. Well, he has tons of vulnerabilities like we all do. I just know that. But he needs people to help him bear that who aren't intimidated by the level of success he's reached, can see through it all and know how vulnerable it is to be in his position. And I may or may not be someone who can be that kind of friend. And you have to have friends like this. One of the most amazing stories in the Bible is this crazy moment is what we call the transfiguration, where Jesus is revealed in all his glory and authority, and with him are Moses and Elijah. That's often seen as just a scene of Jesus' power being unveiled, and it certainly is that. But Luke tells us what they're talking about. And Luke says they were discussing his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. So this is at the turning point of Jesus' ministry, where he's going to start heading to Jerusalem for the last time. And there he's going to be handed over, tortured, crucified, killed. And Luke says that's what he's talking about with Moses and Elijah. Because the disciples had no idea. They do not know where Jesus is going. They don't know, or to the extent they can grasp it, they will do their best to prevent it. (laughs) Moses and Elijah know, and Jesus needs these two human beings, like him, who had borne vulnerability on behalf of God's people. And so if the Son of God needed those kind of friends, we certainly need them.
1: One of the things I like to ask people is, with your overall project, you know, how are you hoping to move the needle? And sort of the culture to of the change church, change the world, right? How do you, how do you, how do you expect to change the world yourself? <laughs> since you're suspicious of world changers,
0: I think the thing that has animated me for the last 10 years, and and maybe will for quite a while longer, is the immense fruitfulness of this language of the image of God and all that it generates and giving us access to that. I want that to be part of our vocabulary. We use it a lot to talk about the dignity of people. That's absolutely right and important. But there's this shadow side of the image of God, which is the making of false images and this kind of language of idolatry as the false image of injustice, as as the presenting and bearing of a false image that destroys the image. I just feel like it's so fruitful. So part of what I want to do is just, I'd like that language to permeate the way we talk about culture, the way we talk about power, relationships, leadership. Probably the only other thing I hope might be true because I've been doing what I'm doing is honesty. (laughs) I really want to be honest. I want to be intellectually honest. I want to be emotionally honest. I want to be honest about the failings of the church as well as the tremendous possibilities of the church. And I feel like public life involves temptations to dishonesty all the time. And we all kind of live public life now on social media. We're all publishers and we're all kind of trying to be famous in our little circle. And honesty, by the way, isn't the exact same thing as that kind of bearing it all or sharing it all. But it is operating out of a deep sense of who I actually am. And I wish I felt like that existed in every setting I'm in (laughs) but actually this is another reason we don't have cultural influence actually is we're not honest great artists are honest and so I want to somehow contribute more by I hope who I am than what I say that it's possible to be honest and yet not to be kind of weighed down by the truth about myself be Honest is not to end up mired in just our brokenness, it's actually to open ourselves up to grace and to how good God is.
1: Mm. Yeah, I wonder just on that note, the culture of the church, and, and especially, I mean, I've been a worship, involved in worship for the last 16 years, and so much of the culture of the church is built around these sort of victorious tones, these victorious notes. Yeah. And so, when you talk about honesty. Historically, Christian worship is very honest. It deals yes. with lament. It deals with death. Uh, John Whitfield has this great quote where he says, the purpose of the church's worship is to prepare people for their encounter with death. <laughs> and that does not sound true of most evangelical worship services, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so there's this...
0: I certainly hope there will be a fog machine and laser <laughs> and all that at my deathbed. At your
1: deathbed. Uh, Bart Simpson described uh, Christian worship one time as... Uh, <laughs> Light smoke and Tybo, you know, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, but I, I just wonder, because a lot of times people, a lot of times people focus on, well, the evangelicalism is so moralistic, uh-huh. and I sometimes wonder, is it, is it that it's moralistic, or is it that it's simply not a safe place for weakness? Wow. Because the culture is wow. demanding. The culture of it is saying, look how great things are. We're so happy. We're so satisfied in God. Mm that you can't expose, I'm not really satisfied in God. I'm kind of broken and frustrated and angry with him because life's not working out the way, mm-hmm. you know. But worship's so formative. Yes. So I wonder if part of it isn't that we've so formed people around these victorious oh, kind of sentiments that.
0: You know, moralism, Yeah, I think you're totally right. It's one small piece of a bigger thing. Sure. To be moralistic is essentially to say morality is easy. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Do the right thing. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. As if that represented the complexity of of our lives and the messiness of our lives and the messiness of people who profess to know what is moral. I'm not saying there's not right and wrong. That's crazy to abandon that. But there's an honest way to talk about what's good and evil. And it's to say the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart, yeah. soldier needs. And that's honest, that's not moralistic. Moralism is, is not honest, but it's, a, it's, a, it's one example of this broader way in which we oversimplify, we sort of paint in very bright colors, and therefore we omit the truth of human experience <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And we present that as the normative good Christian life or the normative good Christian worship service. And that is what the Black Church didn't do. When I was there, and now there are churches in the African-American tradition that have their own versions of this kind of triumphalism, but the best of the the black church cannot possibly pretend that we are just simply victorious. And yet there's more victory in the honesty of the Negro spiritual and the black gospel tradition than in any laser light show I've ever seen in a white megachurch (laughs) with drums and happy music. It's both deeper into the pain and it's deeper into the actual victory of those who overcome by the blood of the lamb. And right there, like that's what it's about. It's the blood of the lamb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now there's an honest account of the world that the, the ruler of the world, when we see him in glory, among other things, will look like a slaughtered animal. If that's the one you're worshiping, I think you're going to do it in a very different way than our simplistic attempts. And we could still do it, it just requires being honest.
1: I think that's a great note to end the season on.
2: There's a pine wobbler
0: sitting
2: on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on. It seems to hustle the leaves and the colours all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Hey.
1: Thanks again to all of our listeners. Thanks to all of you who've donated. Thanks especially to everybody at Sojourn Church here in Louisville, Kentucky. Sojourn is launching Harbor, and I am so, so grateful to this community and your support. I wanna give one last shout out to Dan Darling, Elizabeth Graham, Ryan Lister, Scott Slusher, and Lachlan Coffee. All of these folks have in some way or another gone out of their way to help us make this show possible. Today's show was produced and edited by me, additional editing by TJ Hester, It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Seriously, Mark, you have been uh, an incredible blessing to this show. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Big thanks to you guys for making your music available to us. Our logos are by Chris Bennett. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. A big thank you to Daniela for all the behind-scenes work that she's done to get the show out there. And hey, we'll be back soon. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram if you want updates on when exactly that is. Alright, I'm off to go talk to some more people. See you soon. Thanks for listening.